continue our study in the book of Acts. If you're visiting with us today, that's what we've been doing for this whole year. And the, the kind of theme that we see in the book of Acts and how it applies to us is this, is that it's becoming his church. What does it mean to be his church? Um, if you're new to us, you know, it's, you want to kind of catch up, you can, you can go binge watch all of our... Uh, all of the sermons for the past year, and you can, you can see that the, where the teaching has been and what we've been talking about and emphasizing. But one of the things we've talked about is that we don't want to be a church that, that's just trying to attract a crowd. We would love for a crowd to be here if the crowd is a crowd of disciples. It's a crowd of people who are devoted to God's word and, and devoted to helping and teaching and living out that word. We would love for there to be a crowd. But that's really not our focus. Our focus is on being his church, on being his church that, that, that preaches and lives and, and shares and, and fully embraces all that the gospel means, not just the part that helps me in my life, or helps me through my struggles, but that has this worldwide, universal, eternal solution for all, all of the problems of the world. It's a gospel that's kingdom-focused, and if our gospel is kingdom-focused, our church should be kingdom-focused. And as we've been reading in the past couple weeks, and we're going to read into the next few weeks, when we do that in this world, when we, when we live the gospel fully and faithfully in this world, that there will be suffering. And the suffering that comes is suffering that's coming from being faithfully obedient. There is nowhere in Scripture is it promised that if you do everything exactly the way Jesus says, that somehow you will go through life without suffering. That is not the gospel that we find in Scripture. The gospel we find is when the more we become like Christ, the more the world wants to do to us what it did to Christ. That's what we read, that's what we embrace. And so, as we go through this, some of you may not be believers in Christ, and, and, and this, you know, you might miss some of this, and, and, and just understand we would love to help, you know, kind of fill in the blanks of the things you don't know. Some of you are new believers, and you're just kind of walking through this, and you're, you're beginning to understand the same thing. We'd love to, to continue to dialogue with you. We have opportunities throughout the week for you to do that, but you can also just set up times to talk to John and me, and we'd love to talk to you more. But many of you are already doing a lot of this. You already know this. And this is just really an encouragement to keep on. So we're in chapter 21. And as we know, Paul's been making this journey to Jerusalem. And in verse 17 it says, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present, 
After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their cus our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you, have, that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, sometimes when we read Scripture, it's hard to understand because, um, you know, there's some, maybe some difficult concepts. In this situation, what makes this hard to understand is because it's so unexpected. All along, Luke has been telling us all the things that Paul has been doing. All along, he's been telling us about how he's just been going out and doing really what a lot of other people would never do. And he's, he's been able to both encourage the work of others and begin new work. He's been stoned to death, left for dead, miraculously survives. He's been imprisoned and beaten. He's given of his life, plus he left a life of comfort to do all of this. And then the, the stories we've been reading so in the past couple of weeks is, is all of these very tearful, emotional farewells. He's, he's with that church at Ephesus, these people that they had just poured into one another's lives for, for at least three years, and they were so deeply in love with each other, and it was so hard to say goodbye that Paul didn't even want to go to the city. He just wanted to meet with the elders outside. And then we see him when he, when he travels and he, he gets to, to Tyre and Caesarea, and the story's repeated again and again of these people who who've heard of Paul, they know what he's done, they love what Paul has done, and at the same time, they're afraid for him because he's going to Jerusalem, and they know it's dangerous. What we expect this story to be is kind of how it starts. We expect it to be like the other stories. He gets to Jerusalem, the some of the Christians there receive him gladly. He goes to the leadership in the church. He reports all the things he's done. They rejoice. This is exactly what we expect to see. And then what we expect to see is that as Paul is ministering there, we expect that at some point in time, the religious leaders are going to, they're going to somehow plot to arrest Paul, 
falsely accuse Paul, have Paul killed. It's their MO. It's what they've been doing. That's what we expect. And when we get this, what's actually said after this, we don't expect it. And we can't really make sense of it. What do they say? In response, they, they hear what Paul says. They said, awesome, Paul. And what we expect to hear, and it kind of starts out that way, is that they would then say, Paul, that's awesome what God's been doing through you, and great to hear what's happening out there. Here's what's happening in Jerusalem. They expected a report. And, it, and again, it starts out that way. It says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who are now believers. We expect this. What we don't expect is that this new generation of believers, we don't know how long Paul's been out of Jerusalem, probably up to a decade, but this new generation of believers, a lot of them, they're, again, they're coming from the Jewish faith. They are culturally Jewish. They have observed all the Jewish traditions, and there was no there was nothing in the church that said, when you became a Christian, you had to set aside your, your Jewish faith. In fact, it was Paul himself continued to observe the Jewish faith. But these, these new Christians who didn't know Paul and only knew maybe of Paul had been told these lies about Paul. And Paul's not going in like a hero back to Jerusalem and everybody going, Paul, you're awesome. You know, this is great. We got the, we got the guy who's, you know, for the next 2,000 years, people are going to remember as the greatest Christian ever. We're, we, we get to walk with him, meet with him, listen to him teach. No. It's not the reception. The reception is they've been told these lies. They believe these lies. And now they know Paul's in town. And you can tell the elders knew about this. From the time they heard Paul was coming, the elders knew about this. But before we get too judgy on these new Christian believers, and by, by new, I don't mean they're brand new. Some of them probably were, but some of them had been Christians for a while. We need to understand that what, what's going on in, in Judea at this time, it's a time of great political turmoil. It's even more complicated than ours. We look, you know, you always hear whenever there's an election, somebody will say it. And if you're old enough and you pay attention enough, you stop paying attention to people who say this. This is the most important election in the history of America. They always say that. They're all important, in case you didn't know. But as polarized as we see our culture, what Paul's dealing with in Jerusalem is this city where they are, they are 
under the power of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire allows these different people groups some relative freedom in how they govern one each other and how they relate. They give them some freedoms in, with the, in terms of their religion. And within that freedom, there are, there are hugely vast, vastly different views. There are some that say, the Romans are too big and they're too tough, just get along. There are others who are just trying to, to get, eke out a living. They, you know, they, they don't care who's in power. It could be Romans, it could be Jewish people, it could be whoever, you name them. They don't care. As they, they're just trying to get enough food to put on the table and they're just you know, showing up at work, doing their thing. There's others that are really pro-Roman, not just we're afraid of them, they're more powerful than us. It's like, no, you know, ever since the Romans have come, life's been good for me. Yeah, it's been pretty bad for other people, but it's been good for me. Last thing I want, get rid of the Romans. But there are other people, some of them fueled purely by nationalism, purely by this, this we are an oppressed people occupied by this foreign power, we want them out. It's unacceptable. Others have personally experienced the oppression. Perhaps they lost their jobs or people in their family were killed or imprisoned. And there's another group. And this is the group that we hear about in the Bible the most. And these are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are not just driven by nationalist pride. The Pharisees really, in any other world, any other situation, should be like the group over here that says, we're doing quite well. We have power, we have wealth, we have influence. Leave the Romans alone, because life is good. But they can't do that. They have power, they have wealth, they have influence, but they also have this deeply held belief that God is the one true God. He has chosen the Israelites to be his people. He has designated this land as the promised land and this city as his holy city and in the city is this temple. How can we live with ourselves if these Romans are in power? It's not just nationalism, it's deeply held beliefs. And you have all of these people in the city at the same time. You have all these, these tensions out there. And, and what happens is you get these, these different people kind of rise up and they become kind of influential, charismatic, People want to follow them and they lead some kind of rebellion. And sometimes they're little tiny rebellions that we don't even know about. They kind of disappear from history because they just kind of get wiped out. Sometimes they're bigger. But if this is happening in about 56, AD 56, in just a little more than 10 years, what's going to happen is there's going to be this major uprising. 
all of these political tensions finally come to a boil, the, the side that's against the Romans gathers their strength, rebels. And in AD 70, the Romans do what the Romans do. They come in, kill a bunch of people, enslave other people. Other people just run away. They destroy the city, city walls. They destroy the temple. This is the city they're in. Don't think like these people back then lived in some kind of political naivete and that only we're the only ones who have to deal with this kind of stuff. No. They were dealing with all the stuff we deal with, and on top of it, there were the Romans. Paul is going to that city. And something we don't think about is that all of these, these Christians, whether they've been Christians for a long time or whether they're new believers, they also share different parts of this. Some of them might have been like, you know, Paul says submit to governing authorities. Let's do it. Why should we be involved in any kind of rebellion? But others might have been on the side of how can, we, how can we stand for this? How can we allow you know, this place to be so defiled? When they became Christians, they didn't set aside their Jewishness because God doesn't ask us to do that. If we were to do surveys around here about whether it's political beliefs, theological beliefs, even just you know, just cultural things of what you like, what you don't like. Some of those things, when we become Christians, they are diametrically opposed to God's word and God's truth. They need to be let go. But a lot of those things aren't. It's part of the diversity of the church that in that sense is a good thing. The new believers are bringing into the church the political tensions that are there in their society. And Paul is being accused of one of two things, or perhaps both. He's either being accused of selling out to the Gentiles, or he's being accused of rejecting Judaism. And if that's the case, all of the Christians who, who believe that, that Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism, but it does, it's not the rejection of it, they're going to have a problem with Paul. And the ones that, that understand, that still have this deeply held belief that, that Gentiles, the Romans, are unpure, defiled, Paul's selling out to them. It's a serious problem. Huge problem. (laughs) 
And even today, when scholars look back at this, they accuse Paul. They accuse Paul of being one or more of these things. They accuse Paul of compromising the gospel because he went and purified himself to go to the temple. They accuse Paul of just kind of just wanting to fit in. Good thing Paul's been in heaven for 2,000 years. Because to think 2,000 years later, people who are supposed to be on your side are still calling you a hypocrite. Must be hard. But you might think like, well, you know, our, our church isn't like that. When's the last time we had division in this church over whether somebody is a Republican or a Democrat? doesn't happen. Well, there's a couple reasons for that. Part of the reason might be we just think those are private beliefs, we should keep them to ourselves, or we anticipate it'll cause problems, so we're not going to say anything. But another possibility is what we see happening in the world at large. You see, in a polarized world, people, many people, will only associate with people who agree with them. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter if it's some issue that's facing us, if it's a theological position, they only want to associate with people who agree with them. In fact, in a polarized world, when someone doesn't agree with you and you believe you're right, then what must you think about them? They're either wrong, or they're naive, or they're ignorant, or they're hateful, And unfortunately, even though we don't necessarily see this really happening in our church today, it's happening in the Christian world today. There are people that, Christians, who just want to associate with other Christians who are just like them, who agree with everything they agree with. And let me tell you, there is one situation, one situation where that is the way we should do things. And that situation is when those of us who are in agreement are 100% right all the time. When we're 100% right all the time, it's great to agree with one another. But if we understand what it means to be a Christian, if we understand what it means to grow in our faith, we were talking about this in Sunday school today, growing in our faith means, yes, we're going to grow, we're going to understand more, we're going to get better, but it means I don't have it perfectly today. If I have it perfectly today, growth can only mean negative. It cannot be positive. If I'm perfect, growth can 
only make me less perfect. Growth means I don't know everything. I used to tell my college students at the seminary this. I used to tell them all the time that if, if being a heretic, if being a heretic means you have a false belief, we are all heretics. Not one of us, including myself, has a perfect understanding of everything there is possibly to know about God and about the Word. We, we're growing. That means we're going to be at different places. That means all of us need to be open to being, to, to being changed and, be, and grow. And, and understand, I am not talking about, I'm not talking about having different views on the essentials of our faith. I'm not talking about saying, you know, somebody can say, oh, um, your church believes in that the Bible is God's word and it's the, the authority for our lives. I, I just believe it's a book full of really good ideas. No. It's a, that's, that's, there's no diversity there. If somebody says, hey, your church, you, you know, you guys believe that that the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, that he's the only way to the Father. I think he's one of several good ways to the Father. No. There's no diversity there. Oh, you believe there's one God, and he is the Trinity. I, not, I don't really buy that Trinity stuff. No. There are certain things, there's no diversity. This is essential truth, God's Word. And even in those things, we are developing our understanding of those bedrock, foundational, unchanging truths. And we benefit from, from talking about those things and studying them together. But we have to be really careful, really careful within the church when we only want to associate with people who agree with us. When we get to this text, we see that what Paul is being asked to do Paul had every right. Paul had every right to say, no way. Paul had every right to say, who are these, this new generation of Christians? Don't they know what I've done, how much I've suffered, how much I've sacrificed, what I'm, the whole reason I'm even here. People have told me you're going to be imprisoned. Other people are telling me you're going to be killed, and I'm here. Look at the faith and the sacrifice to be here. And all they want to do is believe lies about me. How dare they? He had every right to say, no way. If they have a problem with me, they need to come talk to me about it. Or he could have said, 
let's just call a meeting. Get all those ingrates together so I can tell them what's truth. Paul had every right. Every right. But that's not what Paul does. If you look at what this plan is, their plan is, okay, Paul, what's to be done? They're not really asking the question. They already know what's to be done. But it's posed as a question. What's to be done in verse 22? He says, look, there's these four guys. And we think, we're not 100% sure, but we're pretty sure they've taken what's called a Nazarite vow. And you, in this vow, you kind of abstain from different things for a period of time. And then you, you, at the end of the vow, to release yourself from the vow when you fulfilled it, you have to make these sacrifices at the temple. And they're really expensive. They cost a lot of money. And so they say, okay, take these men, these four men, purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses. Again, it's not like, hey, Paul, here's some money. Go pay their expenses. Paul, who had every right to say no way, is not just being asked to kind of walk with these guys. He's being asked to put out some serious money to pay for them to complete this vow at the Jewish temple. And then it says, when this happens, when this happens, they're all going to know that everything that was said about you is a lie. You see, Paul's not pretending to follow the law. He does follow the law. He just follows the law for a different reason. He doesn't follow the law out of a sense of, if I don't follow the law, God will punish me. He doesn't follow the law by saying, if I follow the law, God has to accept me. I've earned my way to righteousness. He follows the law because he believes now the law is written in his heart. He's been made new. He's living out what he had studied and known to be external to himself, the law is now inside of him. It's in no way hypocritical. And for him, in his Jewish culture and growing up in the Jewish faith, all of these are perfectly acceptable things. If someone asked me to do that, if I went to, to a place like Jerusalem or someplace like that and somebody asked me to do it, it would be hypocritical. Because that's not my context. I would only be doing it for show. Paul would be doing it because it's part of who he is. He embraces this. He's seen it done in the past. And he's also going to, to do this thing that was, again, it's part of their customs that when, when a Jewish person traveled outside of the Holy Land, the Promised Land, and they came back from being among the Gentiles, they would often go to the temple to be purified. Ritual observance. He does it. 
And you go, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul do this? Well, those of you who come to the Bible studies know I talk about Paul living by three principles. And you can explain all of his actions by these three principles. His principles are, we do all things for the glory of God. Everything. Everything's for his glory, no matter what it is. He even gets down to eating and drinking. We do it for the glory of God. Second thing he says is, everything we do is an expression of God's love that's within us, that God has given to us. And the third is that nothing gets in the way of the spread of the gospel. He lives by these three principles. Why does Paul do this? Several reasons. But one of the first is that it's love. And we've seen love poured out to Paul, and now Paul is pouring out love to others. His church is united by his love, whether we agree on everything or not. Agreement on everything, and when again, when I understand, I'm not talking about the essentials of our faith, but agreement is not a condition for love. The fact that Paul had every right to not go along with this plan demonstrates that he goes along with this plan because he's pouring out love and grace on the church at Jerusalem that doesn't deserve it. They don't deserve it. But isn't that the whole point of grace? It's not deserved. When we don't want to forgive someone because we think they don't deserve it, how is that grace? How is that love? When we don't want to help someone because they don't deserve it, doesn't make sense. When someone doesn't deserve something that God is directing you to love and to bless and to give grace to, it is an opportunity for you to show that unconditional, undeserved love to someone else. What we see here is from verse 17 on, the brothers received us gladly. The elders, after they listen, they're they're glorifying God. We can see, like, they're so happy of what's going on in the rest of, you know, the rest of the kingdom work. And then Paul is confronted in love about this situation that's no fault of his. He didn't start these lies. He didn't contribute to them. It's not his fault. But the elders in love come to Paul and they come to him with a solution and Paul in love accepts their solution and does it. It's saturated by love. And the love brings this unity. There's even love for the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians. If you look in verse 25 and where, where they... The elders say, but as for the Gentiles who believe, we sent them a letter. And in that letter, we said, they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. 
Why did they have to send this letter to the Gentiles? How does it express love? Because if you're a Gentile Christian and you know Paul and you know what he has said about the law and now you see Paul doing things that seem to be appeasing those that want this more full conversion to Judaism, you're going to be worried. You're going to be concerned. Is Paul selling us out now? Has this all been this big bait and switch? Now we're, we're, we're part of the church, and now Paul's going to say, you actually got to be circumcised, everybody. Sorry. New revelation from God. No. They send this letter, which is exactly what we had from, Jerusalem, uh, from the Council of Jerusalem in chapter 15. They're actually reminding them that nothing's changed, Gentiles. Still the same. Still salvation by grace. It is still salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It is still you are free, and you are free from the law. That it's not about becoming fully Jewish, becoming... Um, you know, being circumcised or anything. They just say, hey, this, this is what we agreed on. These are the things that are either egregiously wrong or they are, they are very offensive and difficult for your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters to accept. Nothing's changed. We still agree on all that we need to agree about. But just know, for the sake of your Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, Paul needs to do this. Let him do it. And they do it. Christian unity, unity in the church, is never about uniformity. It is about, it is about relentless unconditional faith in the essential truths of what we believe. But it is also allowing people to be who they are in Christ. And again, things are going to change. As we grow in our faith, things are going to change. If you come to Christ and you're deeply in a sinful lifestyle, if you truly come to Christ, you are going to be confronted in that lifestyle. You're going to be confronted almost constantly by His Word, by the Spirit, to come out of that lifestyle. If you have a, your favorite sin that you harbor, it's the same thing. God is going to confront you in that with truth and with love. The other point we see here is, is at the beginning when you have this, this interchange, which is so important. Unfortunately, the point of the story is, is more about this, this problem in the church that, that Luke kind of runs past this. but that his church is encouraged by the work of God through other believers. I was talking to someone who was at our uh, HPBC annual meeting, which was this Thursday and Friday, 
and we were talking about some, you know, some pretty important things, and, and one of the things he said is that in this particular meeting, we got so little about what God is doing in people's lives and people's churches. The meeting was so much less about understanding people's spiritual journeys, the victories God's brought. And he was right. I'm sure a lot of that happened in the, in the break times and people talking. But there's an encouragement that comes when we hear about the work of other believers, how God is working through other believers. And in this case, they had two very different targets. Paul was working more towards helping reach the Gentiles, the Jerusalem church more towards reaching the Jewish people. And it's not, obviously, the Jewish, the Jerusalem church had also reached Gentiles, and Paul had also reached Jewish people, but they, they had this focus, and they were listening to one another, and it wasn't about competition. It was, we're all on the same team. What's God been doing in your area? And there was great encouragement by that. I know sometimes we in Hawaii, we pride ourselves on being the silent Christian. And we're even silent with one another. And we're afraid. We're afraid that if I start talking about, you know, um, you know what something God has done, whether he did it through me or something I observed, we're afraid that people are going to interpret that as bragging. And maybe it is. But Paul tells us again and again in his letters, and we see it being lived out here, about how when we hear about the faith of others, it encourages the faithful. You know, that's part of, you know, being part of a, of a home fellowship, you know, what we call growth groups. Hopefully, part of what takes place in those growth groups is this, where we're, we're, we're learning about each other. We're understanding where we are in our spiritual journeys. That we're hearing about what God is doing and the victories that are being won and the challenges that are still being faced. I missed one of my slides. I want to go back to it in the previous point, but just real quickly, the action point from the first one is simply this. Learn what are the essentials of our faith. Maybe you don't know what the essentials of the Christian faith are. Maybe you think you know, but you're not sure. Let's find out. We teach them here at the church. We relentlessly teach them here at the church. We want to unite around them. John and I are very careful to be able to you know, help you understand what are the essentials of the faith and where are places where Christians disagree and it's okay to disagree. But if you don't know, learn them. This second point, it goes back to something I talked about last week. We need to be more intentional about sharing what God is doing in our lives and what God is doing in our church. We also need to be more intentional about listening to what God is doing in other people's lives and not just here. We have great opportunity to know what God is doing all around the world all around the islands. We have opportunity to know that. And we should. 
because we are encouraged. I am so encouraged when I hear from Cheryl what's happening in Florida. So encouraged that all this stuff we talk about being the hands and feet of Christ, that I know for sure at least the Southern Baptists are doing in Florida. I know other groups are there doing it, but I know that's happening. Be encouraged. Be intentional. And finally, his church is focused on truth. His church is focused on truth and God's love, no matter the cost. It cannot just be truth. It cannot just be God's love. When they're just like that, one, they, they, they tend to be decontextualized and they get lost and they drift into nothing. Ambiguity, mushy. It's truth that we find in God's word and it's God's love which is poured out on us when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And no matter what, we as a church need to be focused on these two things, which means we keep coming back to the same thing. You have to be a disciple. And then as you're discipled, out of love, you have to be discipling others. And it's not you have to be it because you have to be it. It should be natural to us. If we're people focused on truth, we should want to know truth and be a student of truth and to want to know it with all we can. And then if we're people who've been transformed by the Holy Spirit to love as only God can love, we should want to know how we can do that and how that connects to truth. We need to be like Paul. Instead of saying, I don't need that, instead of saying, I've already done so much. If you knew how much I'd done already for the cause of Christ, no. Just remember, Paul paid for their sacrifices. Paul humbled himself. Paul did not assert his rights. Paul is going to a place and he's going to a temple where he knows there are people who don't just dislike him, who don't just say bad things about him, but who hate him and want him dead. And he's walking right into the place. No matter the cost. And Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 9.20 why. He says, to summarize his, his statement, he says, I become all things to all people so that I might win some. He's focused on truth. He's anchored in truth. But God's love says, you know, sometimes I'm going to do things that I need to do that don't compromise what I believe, don't compromise love, doesn't compromise holiness, but it's going to help win people to Christ. And one of the things we need to understand about Christianity is that truth and love will offend, but truth and love are not offensive. They will offend. People will be offended when you do things from truth and love, but they are not offensive. And really the action point is simply this, know truth and live love. 
we see Paul and we think of him as like, well, he's special. He's so much greater than all of us. We cannot be what he is. Paul will tell you, I am only who I am because of Christ in me. It's the same Christ we have in us. Don't give yourself excuses. Instead, find the reasons that God has brought us together, the resources He's provided to us so that we might be His church, deeply in love with Him, deeply in love with His Word, and deeply in love with each other.